This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards, and with me tonight are my spectacular co-hosts, Emma Westwood and Cerise Howard. How are you all? We're good. We're spectacular. Thank you, Stuart. Welcome back. Some more than others. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome back, Cerise. Thank you. It is a spectacular comeback, is it not? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spectacular. On tonight's show, we look at Mark Russo's Kodachrome and Hereditary, which is being lauded as this generation's The Exorcist. But first, let's take a look at the star-packed heist comedy Ocean's 8, directed by Gary Ross, which Emma and I had the pleasure of attending the premiere of just last <laughs> week. <laughs> which is a- we, it was like we were A-listers, yeah, not. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were kind of trying to, you know, I don't know, glam up we took to a be se- glam. We took a selfie with our Kate. We did. We did yeah. a selfie with our Kate and we, we went back for double helpings of free bubblies. And had some cold popcorn. And p- cold popcorn. Yep. And a glittery pen. And a glittery wonderful. pen. <laughs> the gaudiest pen you'll ever see. Uh, so, in this film, uh, Debbie Ocean, the sister of the late Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney in the earlier films, is freshly out of prison and is looking to plan the biggest jewellery heist to end all jewellery heists. She gets in touch with her old partner in crime, Lou, Kate Blanchett, who is by far the best dressed in this film, to pull, uh, to pull off this they recruit an odd assortment of fellow thieves. Mindy Kalin, Sari Paulson, Rihanna, Helena Bonham Carter and Aquafina. Together they plan on attending the Met Gala and duping spoiled starlet Daphne Kluger, played by Anne Hathaway, in order to steal the Toussaint, a $150 million necklace owned by Cartier. So, Cerise, were you swept away by all this glitz and glamour? No. <laughs> Is that okay? I mean, really? You knew the answer to that before you asked. You were there at the premiere. It was all glittery and you were probably still very (laughs) underwhelmed by the film. You got a pen. That still wasn't enough, was it, Emma? It wasn't enough, but it was wonderful watching the video that had um, all the stars welcoming (laughs) us in Australia to the, yes, to the, the, with Helena Bonham Carter. Just looking looking so grumpy. Yeah, Like if a human was the personification of the grumpy cat, it would be Helena Bonham Carter in that welcome video. Just sitting there going, what am I doing here? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I didn't quite feel that bitter watching this. I I enjoyed it in as much as I just sat there and it started, had a middle and had an end. And then I left and felt none the wiser, but vaguely kind of entertained. It's that sort of film. Lots Mm. of star power, but no... Pizzazz. So much star power. A lot of star power. Yeah. But, um, Except no, George Clooney. <laughs> yeah, but no spark. No spark. Well, why, 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 I mean, yeah, well, was he meant to have had a cameo even or anything? Is I think it, that Matt Damon's character was meant to have a, ca- a cameo, but he actually got um, cut out of it. <laughs> I think either they shot him, as in that, not with a gun, as in with a camera, and then they cut him out of the film. Mm. That would have been entertaining. And put him yeah. in Unsane, Soderbergh's most recent one, just for shits and giggles. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> what on exactly. earth was that all about? But never to mind. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, this isn't a Soderbergh film, so that's a first key 
mm. Break here. Those all those um, blokey oceans films were all Soderbergh directed, I believe. They, they were, weren't they? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, there he's, were three, weren't there? Executive producer. Yeah. In so it's he's just owning it. Yeah. But not doing anything. Mm. On it, really. Yeah. I mean, this this uh, I, I haven't actually watched those oceans films. Is oh, that, is that a cr- criminal thing to admit to? But no, they never really grabbed me. I thought that just, they just sound boring. We're in this, uh, in this, I guess, discussion about uh, Ocean's Eight. This one was getting compared a lot to those collection of films, and I think in this comparison. I think those films are being elevated to a level of quality which I actually don't think they are. Like, they're good films, but in no way are they brilliant comedies. And a lot of discussions around Ocean's 8 are kind of saying it's not as good as those films with Matt Damon, Um, which, yeah, I think is a little unfair to Ocean's 8. I think that's unfair as well. Mm. Exactly what you say. These are just, you know, snappy little fun pieces with... Flits glamour, you know that it's going to work out for the good for everyone. They're going to pull off ridiculous things. There's going to be, you know, a bit of comedy. Mm. Um, there's, I don't know, have you ever seen the, orig- the original original from 1960? Okay, well, that never was a great film, mm. but it set up this premise, the idea of having um, a group of stars. You know, at that time it was the Rat Pack uh, starring in it, and it was really super lightweight. And um, this one, I, I think, this Ocean's franchise has picked up. You know, it's taken that that essence. Um, and I'm talking about right from the start, from right from the start of the Soderbergh mm. films. But it's also uh, kind of managed to incorporate that kind of vibe of remember when Get Shorty came out, and it was all about those really funky, punchy music and the way mm. that the music was cut into it. In fact, I think that's probably where a lot of the skill of this these films come from. The, the, the sound editing, the use of music and the choice of music I always find is really strong. Oh, the, the, the soundtrack to this film is incredible. There's mm. so much great music uh, and we're going to listen to a bit of it tonight. Yeah, I think this one, though, I was a little bit, uh, distracted by the plastic surgery, I couldn't stop looking at Sandra Bullock's face, yeah. and that. And there was a line that the um, the I think it was a police officer at one stage says to her about your partner has not been as tight lipped as you. And I thought, no, no one in this film is as tight lipped as Sandra. She's really like there was not a lot of movement going on there, there you wasn't. know. And even yeah. Mindy, Mindy Kaling, I think, had a little bit of work to bring her up to scratch for the star quality of it. It just... (laughs) And I was kind of mesmerised. I couldn't stop looking at it. Mm. I found that I was comparing her with Kate Blanchett and going, now, Kate, she's got to have done something, uh, had something done, but it looks so good. Good. Hers looks so good. What's going on with is have they airbrushed Sandra in it? And were there beauty lenses used in this film, like in an old mm. old fashioned film? I, I don't know, but it was it was odd. Yeah, five years imprisonment had done. Her. Yes. No, no, she didn't exactly look too roughed up by the whole. No, no, what a retreat. treatment. Yeah, <laughs> look. Um, the film's so fluffy, but it just doesn't mm. sparkle either. I was expecting some sort of um, some zip and zing. Mm. There were no zingers. In fact, the only line that made me laugh out loud was delivered by a chap. 
It was James Corden. He was great. Yes. It, it was really good fun. But I wanted the women to, yeah, to bounce too. off each other and to be yeah. just throwing zingers left, right and centre. And it, it just didn't happen. Yeah, there was they, no chemistry between mm. all of these conspirators. Even Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett, they have so many scenes together where they're kind of dining and being extravagant and there's just no chemistry between the two there's of them. There's nothing. I mean, no. the interviews they're doing... Um, there's a really funny interview between Kate Blanchett and Sarah Paulson that's doing the rounds. There's chemistry in those, but in the actual film, there's nothing. See, I find this hard to understand why it didn't come out because Gary Ross, who had directed this, I think he actually wrote it or co-wrote it, but he um, definitely directed it. And he's got a really, you know, he's got a really good track record. Mm. His first feature screenplay was big, the Tom Hanks film, so which was a long time ago now, but then he went on and he did Dave, Pleasantville, Seabiscuit, all mm. these sort of things, you know. <laughs> You're laughing at Seabiscuit. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> well, what are you laughing at? <laughs> you? <laughs> Come on, Seabiscuit. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they're not small indie, you know, edgy films. But in terms of the big Hollywood cinema, he, he knows his stuff, mm. you know. But this, yeah, it was just, it was just fun. I think the script kind of falls off the rails towards the end. I mean, the, I think part of these heist comedies is how they pull it off and just how sort of ex- like insane the actual kind of heist is. But the connections between all of the sort of events and what everyone does, I think, is just so far flung. But by the end of it, I've completely lost what they're actually doing and I I, I thought it was a bit too over the top. It's not terribly suspenseful. That's a problem. While while the whole heist and all its elaborate um, amazingness is is being... uh, hmm? Orchestrated. Orchestrated. That's Mm. exactly the (laughs) word I was after. I I was... There's no sense of that um, being something that might not come good. Like you just know they've got it. There's nothing there that really makes you anxious. A bit of split screen, that would have gone a long way to mm. you know, show a couple yeah. of things happening at once, to have a sense of, oh, those folks have got their bit down pat, but whoa, here come these other folks into frame in this other part of the screen and, you know, could something go wrong there? I, mean, I just never had a sense that there, were, there was any jeopardy. Yeah, the and states, without a sense yeah. of jeopardy, the heist... Is it, it doesn't? It, there's no engagement. Why yeah. watch a heist film if, if you don't actually get drawn into the heist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the stakes weren't high enough. I don't think. Because she's already been to jail. What's another jail stint? If she gets caught, the stakes just aren't really there. Mm. One, another aspect which I was a little disappointed by this film was that it didn't really kind of make fun of or subvert the fashion industry. I think if you're going to the Met Gala, there's so much campness and idiocy that you can make fun of but it's yeah. just not there we've got all of the you know zach posen and all of these other fashion designers and um the anna wintour anna wintour is there and but none of it's it's all very very serious yeah um, they yeah. didn't th- there was a lot of opportunities to play with cameos because there's it's cameo galore yeah. in this in this film but yeah not nothing really it was more that we just saw them and went oh there's Anna Wintour rather yeah. than I don't know mm. Anna Wintour stepping in dog poo outside the Met Gala <laughs> or something See that made me laugh <laughs> <laughs> that and sea biscuit have been my two things that have set me off this evening so far <laughs> vis-a-vis Ocean's 8 very few giggles <laughs> 
um, uh, the Anne Hathaway character and the character played by Helena Bottom Carter, I thought they were genuinely funny. I thought they held the film together because they are ridiculous characters and they're going into this space and she's wearing this weird bird's nest on her head, um, Helena Bottom Carter going around and yeah. and she's billed as being a very terrible fashion designer and everyone's eating her up. Yeah. Um, because she's sort of she's sort of walking in with the biggest star. I thought they kind of made fun of the fashion industry, but there just wasn't enough there to Yeah, they um, had they had a little bit of sport with it and they did actually mm. have a, a bit of bounce off one another. A little. Yeah. Mm. I mean I actually quite like Anne Hathaway in a comic turn. I think she's mm. she's pretty good. But um, yeah, I just uh, I think the the film fell apart because Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett in particular did not have that chemistry. That dynamic didn't work between them at all. Mm. Yeah, that was interesting. At one stage, I thought that I, I, w- I was almost hoping they were going to bring in a queer dynamic. There was one thing where she was when they got sort of annoyed with each other that I thought, oh, maybe they're going to come in at this with a different angle, but. No, it didn't really go there. Well, I were, think that could have made it a bit more interesting. Well, they were always dining and they always had gloves on and I kept on thinking of Carol and gloves and, and I kept on thinking maybe they're trying to have a bit of queer baiting here between Sandra Bullock and um, and Cam Planchette, but I just didn't really. I didn't no, say no. No, no. I, I thought it could have gone there. Mm. I, I actually hope so because, mm. yeah, there was just not enough, not enough. Which is a shame because there's so much potential with this film, mm. I think. I mean, the cast is great. Mm. And, you know, they've set this up wanting to make more. I mean, that's the whole point of these exercises is to have one in order to have another. Though I'd like the follow-up to be Ocean's Eight and a Half and to go a bit Fellini with it <laughs> and, and actually go fully surreal and actually be good. <laughs> Know what I mean? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, that won't happen. Spoilers, that won't happen. But, uh, <laughs> we can only hope. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now to Hereditary. Writer-director Ari Aster's debut feature has been met with significant critical acclaim. Following the death of her grandmother, Annie Graham, played by Tony Collette, attempts to move with her li- on with her life with her art. She specialises specialises in miniatures and her family with her caring husband, Steve, played by Gabriel Byrne, their teenage son, Peter, played by Alex Wolfe, who coincidentally starred in last week's film, My Friend Dharma, and their preteen daughter, Charlie, played by newcomer Millie Shapiro. Following a tragic occurrence, Annie's life and her family begin to unravel as she explores unsettling revelations about her ancestry. Annie's work with miniature sets plays a key role in the film's aesthetic, as does the film's creepy soundtrack by Colin Stetson. So, Emma, is it a bit hyperbolic to claim that this is one of the scariest films in some time? <laughs> I like horror movies. Yes, I that's do. why I went to you first. And because um, I like horror movies, I find a lot of people will ask... First of all, a lot of people are surprised. I don't find it that surprising that I would or anyone would like horror movies. I think they're sensational um, and can be the most creative cinema and the most visceral, visceral cinema. But um, the the question that's usually asked of me is is that is a film scary when they ask me a, um, about a particular horror movie? Um, invariably, I don't go to see horror for to be scared. I find there's a lot of other things that horror cinema does other than just scare you. 
But this film is possibly one of the scariest horror films I've seen for a long time. I can actually say this is scary and it was sweaty palm scary for me. And right from the beginning as well, it seemed that the tone was set within the first five minutes uh, without anything seemingly scary happening. It was still scary. Mm. And I think there was a something in the sound mixing or there I could hear, and I don't know whether you guys could hear, I wasn't because sometimes you're never entirely sure with the cinema or whatever, but I could hear this sort of audio thrumming kind of pulsing at times. And I felt that it set up um, uh, a feeling of anxiety in the audience without even having the scary imagery. Obviously, when the scary imagery comes in, that ups the ante, but it it was there. The mood was set right from the start. Well, I I think the mood was set visually right from the start, and I think there was an eeriness from very early on because uh, one of the first visual elements we're introduced to is this, as you mentioned, Stuart, this miniatures business Mm. that that Tony Collette's character is in the business of making miniatures. And miniatures are instantly into the realm of the uncanny, things which are expected to be of a certain size but aren't. And as soon as you're seeing little figures within uh, a space that is miniaturised, somehow, especially if we're conditioned to having seen a lot of horror films to certain tropes, we somehow expect them to become animate, even though we expect that they should remain inanimate logically. But we're into an uncanny area here. And, and, and that I think with that sort of background audio... Just a, a, yeah, an uneasy recurrent, let's say, thrum. Um, <laughs> and just certain camera, slow camera movements. There's a lot of very gradual, slow camera movements. You know they're not necessarily POV shots, point of view shots. They're just slow encroachments upon something which instantly just gives a sinister atmosphere to whatever is in frame or possibly just outside of it. It does a very good job, this film, of, of generating a sense of unease and introducing more and more elements that uh, we would associate with this construct we call the uncanny, um, a, a slightly spooky young young girl, the, the daughter of the family. There's just something about the way she's shot and every single time she's on screen, she's just spooky. Mm. Is she it is. her cheekbones, the eyes? There's she's something an, just she's, she's an unusual looking child. It almost feels like it's the elephant in the room um, critically with that. No one actually talks about she is physically an unusual looking girl. And even though we call her newcomer, because I think this is her first film role, she's done a lot of acting. She's done a lot of stage acting. And we were talking about it, Stewie, um, last week, I think, and you mentioned that she was in the stage production. She played Matilda in the, I think it was, oh, no, that was Faith. Faith said that. Sorry. Our producer, Faith. Faith, Faith, Stewie, they're the same, aren't they, really? (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, so she was, um, yeah, she's been in Matilda. So she has been in a a lot of things. And she's great in this film. She looks, I mean, the way she carries herself throughout the film is just really unsettling. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that you mentioned the uncanny nature of the house because, there's. I mean, the, the shot is featured in the trailer, so this is not a spoiler, but the opening shot kind of dollies forward and the the miniature of the house kind of becomes real as actors kind of mm. walk in. Yes, a That's dolly nice. into a doll's house. A dolly yeah. into a dolly house. Yeah. <laughs> and f- for me, 
then constantly throughout the film, there are so many establishing shots, which I think were miniatures. And there are so yes, many moments when the camera is just kind of wafting through the house as if it is a point of view of a ghost almost. And you're not sure if you're actually seeing a miniature or uh, the actual house. And because the, the furniture, the setting is so clean and just so sterile almost mm. that it does almost look like a doll's house. There's no clutter in the house, I don't think. Well, the camera movements are so smooth and elegant mm. too. They're a match for that mise-en-scene. They're just so steady, the steadiest of steady cam sort of shots, very much um, Kubrick, The Shining-esque mm. with that similar sense of uh, creepiness. Yeah. Yeah, this film spends a lot of time basically in that sort of register and before it starts to really ratchet things up at about, I don't know, maybe the two-thirds mark. It's a real slow burn with a few little, um, I wouldn't call them jump start, startle type effects, but just little moments of real creepiness where sometimes it's just a little sound effect that echoes back to a character whom we might suddenly be missing for some reason. Or, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop it. The clicking tongue noise. Yeah, and <laughs> so any drag race fans will know Alyssa Edwards pops her tongue. And so the the young girl pops her tongue a lot. A lot. And <laughs> when that started, I wasn't scared. I just kept on thinking of Alyssa Edwards, the drag queen. <laughs> but then yes, the film does go to a very creepy place and then it does get scary. Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> <laughs> It has a interest. Well, considering this is um, the director's debut film, it pitches. He pitches very high. It's a very ambitious film, uh, and he's for the most part successful. I don't think it is. People talk about it, the Exorcist of this generation. I don't think it is that film. Um, even Rosemary's Baby. There's some similarities, it, 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 but it does pitch itself up there alongside those films and it, and it goes in balls and all to, to really give its best. I think that where, it, where those films are so, so wonderful is because they're very clear with their horror sequences as well, that those horror sequences have something to play in the narrative. This film still kind of... A lot of horror films can get a little bit cluttered. I think they feel that they need to have a moment of horror at a certain time. And this one doesn't... Not all the horror sequences feel that clear-sighted. Maybe trying to do a little bit too much, I would say. But... Um, there are some remarkable sequences in, in mm. there as well, some beautiful sequences and um, especially the handling. I love the handling of, of grief and reactions to trauma in, in, in this film, uh, especially there was, it was just even the timing that was given to the moments of grief or the reactions were not the usual, what I felt wasn't the usual of what I've seen on screen. And the miniatures that you were talking about, the way they played a part in the narrative as well. Which is really unexpected. They, it is, it is. They actually clarified uh, certain parts. Um, for example, when Tony Collette has that big monologue, 
um, monologue, which was amazing, about her her guilt and her relationship with her mother and how she says, I gave my daughter to her and says about her allowing, and she said she even fed her. Now, we don't really know what that means until we see the miniature where the grandmother actually breastfed the child. And you see that in the miniature. That comes out in the... in the. That's a little bit of narrative that comes out in the miniatures that I thought was just so incredibly powerful. But it does play on that idea of, um, you know, the mother mother's guilt, mother's relationship with children, which plays such a huge role in horror, always has, but especially now there's been a string of films that have worked with that, things like The Babadook and The Conjuring, even the Under Under the Darkness. Is that the name of that wonderful film from Turkey? I think it was called Under the Shadow. Under the Shadow. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And... Um, and this is just another, you know, another way of delving into that, but they're also playing the the, the lineage of the mother and um, another a previous generation of the mother as well. Alex, our good, uh, our, our wonderful colleague, Alex Helen Nicholas, who people will know if they've been listening to the show for a while. She was on last year and before that. She wrote a great piece for ACME on around spiritualism mm. and 19th century spiritualism in this film, and that does play out really strongly and the idea of how women... Um, how spiritualism is something that has been aligned mainly with women. And women being believed as well. Yeah, yeah. That's another big component of that, mm. yeah. Yeah, where, say, the the major male characters in this film, in particular the father, Gabriel Byrne, he's kind of a bit of a nothing presence there, really. He Mm. is just there to be kind of supportive at first, but then increasingly frustrated and highly sceptical. yeah, he, he does occupy that sort of position of rationalism, you might say, um, but not exactly especially strongly because we're not that interested in him, to be honest, are we? None of us. The film's not that interested in him. He just pops no. up from time to time, looks a bit dour and grumpy. <laughs> Understandably, his, his his nerves are probably being a little stretched tight because things are getting pretty weird in that house. But um, it's, it's actually quite hard to be at all sympathetic for him. While we, well, the, the film does very well in aligning the sympathies for the audience with the characters that I think the filmmaker wants us to feel those sympathies yeah. with. And that is largely the women characters, the female characters, the the mother, not so much the grandmother, um, but the, the daughter and the, the curious other woman who appears at some point. Joni. Joni. Yes. Anne Dowd, who's so yes. good. Yeah, she's and very good. Now, most people would probably recognise her from um, uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Aunt Lydia. She yeah, was she's also in Compliance, where um, there's the woman who's the manager of the fast food outlet and then there's a prank caller saying you have to hold that worker sort of under arrest for some, uh, for some reason. And yeah. so she's in that as well. She's a great actress. Yeah, because she has this great way of this great sense of malevolence even when she's being nice. And that, yeah, that comes across very strongly in this film. It's it's interesting because it is a film about I think that the, the primary influence is from the older women too. So it's it's great to see this this idea of the power of elder, elderly women 
mm. uh, which you don't often get to see through films unless you watch Dario Gento, which is films. Mm. <laughs> Elena Marcos in Suspiria. Poor <laughs> Rosemary's Baby and the Lovely Neighbours. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Well, that's, that's a beautiful correlation yeah. f- between this film and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. So they allow these women to be these incredible characters like Ruth Gord- Gordon was in, yes. in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. One thing, uh, one little quibble with Hereditary is, is in fact, uh, its title troubles me. Um, it's, it's an awful title it's anyway. An awful, it's yeah, but then boring. also what it signifies and that at one point in the film it is it is there as a, a bit of a... Um, uh, there's a discussion had, or maybe it's more of a monologue at some point, about uh, inherited mental illness, which I find problematic. Mm, mm. Yes. And it's also it's problematic just in and of itself because mm. um, it just throws a few different conditions willy-nilly into the mix and refers to, um, say, a disassociative identity disorder. Yep. And then they actually mention that. They do mention that yep. one specifically and another couple of conditions and the suggestion... Which is might well be borne out in in truth that um, you might inherit some degree of uh, mental ill health, but the the way that that is used to further the narrative, especially without wanting to go into spoiler territories, but to say that that might be a little bit of misdirection, I think is actually a bit problematic. Mm-hmm. Know what I mean? Yeah, mm. I know what you mean. I do because it does. The title is almost sort of putting the blame on Tony Collette's character. Yeah, for well, the it, events that happen. Yeah, there there is some aspect of that and yeah, yeah. without giving anything to, away yes <laughs> it's hard to say without giving well talk about we we, we discussed this Stu. i know this we we discussed the trailer um before the show and how um i feel that this trailer was very good it's very smart because it it kind of puts you off the scent shall we say mm. Mm. Um, it's very clever yeah it's a very clever trailer mm. Yeah, I just wish it had been entitled to something different. It's just a really loaded idea. It? What would I call it? Yeah. Oh, Tony Collette goes batshit crazy. Um, <laughs> she is very reasons. good in this film. Yes, when she, she has that, it's not really a monologue, it's just kind of a scream almost where she says, I am your mother. Yes. That is so perfectly done. Uh, I think that these one title, um, the one word titles, I usually feel very lazy to me. Um, something like hereditary, something like oh, Inception or, you know, names like that uh, always seem very... I suppose a doll's house had been taken, hadn't it? <laughs> that, that, that's been used before? Well, we had a beautiful title last week, which was I Kill Giants, which was, uh, yeah. you know, a great a great title. I like yeah. really long titles. A pigeon sat on a branch contemplating existence. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, a proper giallo title would have gone yeah, a long way would, here. That could have... And, and it could have worked yeah. with the actual themes on the, you know, the material that was being presented yeah, instead in Instead of don't torture a duckling, don't behead a little birdie outside don't, a classroom window. Don't or... behead a pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Alex before, uh, I, saw, I saw this at a, a screening. On my right was Thomas Caldwell. On my left was Alex Nicholas, And I thought I was cool, calm and collected throughout the entire screening. And then there's that first, I won't say what it is, but the, I think there's that first real kind of kicker when it gets up a notch. And then all of a sudden I just get this hug from Alex Nicholas. <laughs> Because apparently I looked so traumatised. <laughs> she stopped watching the film and started watching me watch the film because mm. I was so distracted. Hugged by the ghost of Plato's cave past. <laughs> and please tell me that, you know, Thomas screamed like a five-year-old or something no, like he, that. He was cool, calm and collected. Uh, he, yeah. was, he was very still. He was very centred. 
I was clutching my pearls the entire time. <laughs> Three triple R. Now to our final film of the evening. Based upon a New York Times article by A.G. Sulzberger, Kodachrome is the sophomore feature from Mark Rasso. Uh, the film stars Paul Sudeikis as a struggling record executive who is close to losing his job after losing a major band. The sprightly Zoe Kern, played by Elizabeth Olsen, shows up at his office and tells him his estranged father is dying. She's the nurse and assistant to Ben, his father, played by Ed Harris. And Ben, aside from being an asshole, is a world-renowned photographer who wants to develop some old roles of Kodachrome film. The catch is, to do so, they must go to Parsons in Kansas, to Dwayne's Photo, a small Photoshop that is the last place to develop Kodachrome film, and will stop developing Kodachrome in a few weeks. And so begins a road trip for the unlikely trio as they try to get to Kansas before the store closes. Cerise. What? <laughs> Did Kodachrome make you nostalgic for a pre-digital era? Uh, no, but I, I have. I am already. I mean, that's just a thing. Um, I, did, I did note approvingly that this film was shot on 35mm film, um, though not shot with any great flair, it has I to be know. said. It's a very by-the-numbers American indie yeah. film yeah. Uh, in its look, in its pacing, in what few gags it has. I mean, that's sort of meant to be a kind of comedy and amongst the road trip and general father and son reconciliation vibe thing of it all. Um, but it's really, the, 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 this is another film where the title's a bit of a, 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 a bit of misdirection in that title. It's not really about Kodachrome. It's not, it, it is, a, it, there is a nice little aspect to the resolution of the film which does pertain to film and what is on some particular roles of film that's that's fine well and good but um this is just such a, a mid <laughs> a, such a middling american indie it's the, the exact sort of film that m reminds me how generally lukewarm i feel about american independent films i don't think it really had much of a, an aesthetic that was of an indie film at all there's nothing quirky well, that's why I would, whatsoever. I, that's I, kind of what I mean. Yeah, I, mm. it's just as if this was an extended episode of Grey's Anatomy or something. It was <laughs> Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> why Grey's Anatomy? No. We've been talking about it before. Yeah. I love that show. That's very specific. No, just very Shonda Rhimesy. I think. Just no, there's nothing. <laughs> there was nothing good about this. So confected. Oh, so you really didn't like it. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, I thought it was pretty flat as well. It, I read a couple of reviews that were glowing of it. Wow. This beautiful, warm-hearted, oh, just they, you know, went on and on. But, yeah, I, I think that what Cerise pointed out, this, you know, they make a big point of saying it in the end credits, shot on 35mm Kodachrome film, that's all very well and good, but yeah, it just really didn't. It didn't. It didn't create a sense of nostalgia in imagery or beauty or sell the idea of film over over digital. And when I say sell film over digital, it can that can be really really subtle. That doesn't have to be going over the top. But also, it kind of made a big um, point of it being on shot on film. There are still quite a few films that are shot on film now. So I think, you know, well, even last year I wrote down some. Killing of Sacred Deer, The Beguiled, 
Wonder Woman, I believe, mm. was shot on, on film. Perhaps some of the CGI sequences, not so much. Not so much those, but Dunkirk... Good yeah. time. There were a lot of films that were shot on film that look better than this film, considering that this film is all... A, it's called Kodachrome, for Christ's sake. But it is about um, the passing of time and this idea of nostalgia and not just the move from digital to analogue or analogue to digital, I should say. It was more... It even uh, there was a great line, though, when Ed Harris said something about what was it about? Did you ever hold a pair of fake tits in your hands? Nothing like the real thing or something. So it, it was, everything was about this progression of this change from the past. Um, but the, even the father-son relationship, like I think Jason Sudeikis is great and in collateral, what was it? What was it called? Colossal. <laughs> that's it. Not collateral. That starred Tom Cruise. Colossal last year, which was one of the better films of last year, I felt he was remarkable. Um, but this film, the, that relationship with him and Ed Harris, they both, they're great actors, but there just wasn't anything there. I didn't also get why, I felt that there was going to be a big revelation of why these people, such as Elizabeth Olsen, liked Ed Harris so much, but there was no <laughs> revelation apart from the fact that he was a talented photographer. And then this dramatic compulsion was around the idea of what's on this film, you know, what are we going to see on this film in the end? And it was exactly what I thought we were going to yeah, see on this yeah. film in the end. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it had to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it even had a very obvious uh, romantic liaison that was going to be set up. I would have preferred that she was actually partnered with a different character in the film, let's say. Mm. If you think about it, oh, and that would be better. But no, it was just, it was all very cliched. Really. I, think it's, I think it's about time we had a film about a mediocre straight white man struggling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not enough of them. Yeah, <laughs> struggling under the shadow of a great white man. Another one of those narratives. <laughs> when I was just in a throwaway fashion slagging off American indies, it, it really is... Well, I mean to be a little more focused. This sort of indie, the sort that gets distribution by the so so-called um, indie or boutique arm of a major la of a major studio, a classics label they sometimes mm. used to call them, or some nonsense like that. It's, it's of course there's a whole lot of edgy independent filmmaking in the states as elsewhere, but the sort that we tend to get released into our little pseudo art houses yeah. here tends to be garbage mm. and and twee and obvious and um, like this film. Every narrative beat that happens in this film is predictable. There's, I mean, I was mm. with you, Emma, where I was, there's going to be something about their relationships and their history that's going to be interesting, but nothing. The only thing, even... That kind of romance between um, Elizabeth Olsen's character and Paul Sudeikis. Jason. His name's Jason. Jason. I don't know where you got the Paul Sudeikis. Paul Sudeikis. Uh, Paul Sudeikis. <laughs> 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 it's the most interesting thing about this film. I mean, so she's 29 and yeah. he's 44. And that just... It's just so predictable about kind of Hollywood films where there's this much younger woman with an older man and... Yeah, you can see it coming a mile away. He um, also mansplains taste in music to her. Yes, Which that's is great. just ghastly. <laughs> but actually does seem a realistic scene that could happen because it's 
such a thing, but it's also just excruciating. I mean, there's enough of that in the world. Why put more of it out there into she a does film? A, she does some great yorping to a live song, so oh God, that was pretty oh God, good. That band. <laughs> but that scene when he's mansplaining music to her, it's meant to be cute and endearing and, you know, there's a spark between them, but it was just so off-putting and yeah. his character was so thoroughly unlikable. Exactly. I, I was just waiting for that revelation, though, that there had to be something else to Ed Harris, and there wasn't. There wasn't. There was just nothing, you know. Even I didn't... Everyone's talked about how brilliant he was, but I didn't get that they even communicated his brilliance. Did we get to see any of his photos? No. No. It was, it was just... And even the photos we do see are not great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, they're going to be in an exhibition, like yeah, <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's it's odd because I think this um, the director, if I, it's his sophomore film, as you said, his second film, um, and he's as a student and a, a and a burgeoning filmmaker, he's been incredibly highly awarded and so forth. So. I, I'd be interested. I'd be interested to see his shorts and what he's actually done in that that realm because this doesn't feel like it's got any any pop at all. Mm. Mm. I didn't. I didn't oh. hate it, but yeah. I just didn't get. Yeah, get likewise, much from it's just it. a yeah. totally lukewarm experience. Exactly. <laughs> it's just middling, 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 middle America, middling away. <laughs> Nothing, nothing else. I don't think we've got anything else to say about it. Play a song, Sue. I think I'm zinging Play a song. Aren't you? Yeah. All right, okay, well... So Kodachrome is playing in limited release now. Tonight we also reviewed Hereditary and Ocean's 8, both of which are in wide release. You've been listening to Emma Westwood, Cerise Howard and myself, Stuart Richards. Thank you to Faith Everard, who edits the podcast version of this show, and to Carl Chapman on the decks tonight. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.